Good morning. Good morning. It is a genuine pleasure to be able to share the Word of God with you today, uh, to be worshiping with you, and um, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's begin with the Word of Prayer. Father in Heaven, as we come to hear your Word, we thank and we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us in a marvelous way, opening our eyes, opening our ears, opening our hearts to the message that you would have for us. Lord, we come, we bow down, we worship before you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, this morning I would like us to take a journey, a little journey back to the time of the first church. Um, and perhaps even a bit earlier than that, uh, so that we can get a taste of what the scriptures mean when they speak of worship. And you say, wow, that is a big subject. How do you tackle worship in one short sermon, one 30-minute stretch of time? Well, what we hope we can do is uh, we can uh, at least get our feet wet. We can, we can jump in. We can see a little bit about what the scriptures teach us about worship, because it's not really a matter of debate that that worship, the worship of the Triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the worship of this this marvelous Creator who made all things, who flung the stars into existence, who's made the smallest little uh, minute piece of pollen on the smallest wildflower. That this God calls us to bow down before Him. He calls us into a, a relationship of fellowship and delight and joy. And so we want to explore this. We want to worship him as he wants to be worshipped. So we'll be centered in Acts chapter 2, especially verses 37 through 47. I hope it's not too disappointing to let you know we're not going to unpack the entire text. Okay, but we're going to be focusing on a few verses that touch on worship, and it may be helpful to know that this sermon is part of a series, a five-part series that I preached several years ago. And what it does is takes a look at ten marks from this passage that that indicate the presence of the Holy Spirit in the early church. What were the marks that the Holy Spirit imprinted upon those first believers? What did that look like? We'll see that this passage will take place at the time of Pentecost. And we're going to look at it from a perspective of both how do uh, how can we benefit personally in our own individual worship as believers, but how can we also as a church learn and improve our worship? Now, I cringe a little when I look at the original sermon title that I had for this uh, series. It was, how do we measure up? Now, I'm not saying it's bad to look at the scriptures and ask that question, how do we measure up? But sometimes when we come to the idea of self-evaluation, we can take this uh, in the wrong way. It can be a little scary uh, or intimidating or even sound legalistic to ask the question, how do I measure up? How do we measure up as a church? Some of you have faced performance reviews by bosses and you knew you hadn't met all your goals. Some of you might have a spouse 
uh, or, or have someone else in your life who never seems to notice all the great things that you do. But you miss one little tiny thing and they'll let you know about it. Or maybe some of you kids might feel like maybe mom and dad are just picking at you every minute. They don't notice when you obey. Right? So, so sometimes this idea of, of self-examination is a little scary. But then there's those of you that are going, self-examination? Hmm. What's that? What does that even mean? Right? I've got it all together. Why upset the apple cart? Things are going just fine. And so before we even read the text, I want to encourage you to avoid two pitfalls when you examine yourself. Because Scripture does in various places, and join us to evaluate ourselves. So, so first of all, I want you to avoid hypercritical navel-gazing, right? Hypercritical navel-gazing. You're just like looking at yourself with such intense scrutiny that you're immediately almost driven to despair, right? Some of us fall off on that end of the spectrum. And what does it lead to? It can only lead to self-condemnation. And self-condemnation only leads to needless despair. You notice I say needless despair. There's a point for despair. There's a, there's a point of realizing your sin and realizing we don't measure up and repenting and turning. But brothers and sisters, we don't need any more despair than we actually need. We don't need needless despair. You find yourself saying, I can't do anything right. God couldn't love me. Why even try to change? And you might be falling off onto this pitfall. But the second one is an equally bad extreme. It's the extreme of superficial self-congratulation. Right? So when it comes to the point of evaluation, it's like, well, of course, we're doing everything right. As a believer, as a church, we're crossing all the I's. We're, we're crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's. God loves us. Why am I trying to change? So I want you to avoid those two pitfalls because superficial self-congratulation leads to self-justification, which then leads to a baseless hope. See, we don't want to put hope in ourselves and in what we do. Instead, Scripture encourages us in Romans 12.3 to judge or evaluate ourselves with what? With sober judgment. But this self-examination is always founded and rooted upon the glorious truth that we are accepted in God through Jesus Christ. And so when scriptures ask us to look at ourselves, they ask us and tell us, first of all, look at Jesus. Look at what Jesus has done for you. If you're a believer in Jesus, if you trust in him, he accepts you. And when he asks you to evaluate yourself, he's not saying, and if I find a mistake, you're out of the club. No, he wants you to walk more closely to him. If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Jesus says, I accept you based on my finished work for you. Well, what exactly are the marks of the Holy Spirit's work in the church? Well, as I have them listed, uh, when I preached this, this series, through a series of five sermons, it was the preaching of the Word of God. It was church discipline and shepherding care. It was the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and Baptism. We'll find all these things present in this passage, at least in some measure. There was the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, 
both uh, faith and repentance, conversions to Jesus. There was fellowship. There was corporate prayer. There was unity. There was worship and there was outreach. And so today we're going to be focusing on worship. Now, as if you hadn't had enough introductions, one more mini introduction. Acts chapter 2 is an entire passage steeped in worship. Right? It's the Feast of Pentecost. It's a time when the Israelites were gathering together to celebrate God's goodness. God had brought in the grain harvest. And so it's a time of, of pilgrimage. It's the Old Testament Feast of Weeks. It's a time of worshiping God. And people are coming from all over the place, from nations all over the world, to worship and to praise the Lord. And so let's start Acts chapter 2. I will actually read verses 1 through 4 first. Hear the word of God. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. Well, in verses 4, uh, all the way over through the end of the chapter, uh, through, um, through verse 40, Peter begins to open up for the other folks who were around there and who began to be confused when they started hearing the works of God in their own tongues and their own languages and who thought that the people, that, that the Christians were drunk. Peter stands up and preaches a sermon and he appeals to the crucifixion of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus as the basis for God beginning this marvelous work of drawing together a people who would worship him, who would come together and worship his holy name. So I want to continue starting at verse 32 on to the end of the chapter. Peter continues, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods 
and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It's Pentecost. It's the Feast of Weeks. Many people have traveled for miles, many of them on foot, through dusty, hot roads. Many of them were dirty. They were weary from the feast. But they were there for one reason. And that reason was worship. They were there to worship the God of Israel. Of course, the early believers... The vast majority of them, but the very earliest ones, obviously, the disciples, were Jewish, right? They were steeped in the Old Testament. They knew the festivals. And they came. They came to celebrate. God was a God of deliverance. He was a God of provision. He was a God of covenant mercies. And he provided everything that his people needed. Food, shelter, safety, they came to celebrate this great God. These Christians, therefore, were at this feast, and they too were worshiping. They were giving thanks, and yet this day of Pentecost, this festival of the Feast of Weeks, was like no other. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4, speak of the remarkable supernatural power of the Holy Spirit that came to the church that day. And I would put forward to you that the church of the risen Jesus, that the entire goal of the church of the risen Jesus, the crucified risen Jesus, the Jesus who has poured out his spirit at Pentecost on his church, that perhaps the biggest reason for this is that there would be a people on the earth to worship him, to continue worshiping him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want us to be encouraged today that this same Holy Spirit is with each one of you who trust in Jesus, with each church who proclaims Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so I want us to see this morning that this worship of Jesus, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the design of creation, the victim, if you will, of the fall into sin, the goal of our redemption, and finally, the preoccupation of glory. Or it might be helpful to think in terms of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation, right? Worship is a part of all of these sections of redemptive history. Now, now the design of creation, the design of creation, what does that mean? Well, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, worship was future-oriented, but with feet firmly planted in the present. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, this doesn't mean they were just strolling together. This was a time of worship. This was a time of fellowship. Our first parents got together with the Lord in the garden and worshipped Him. See, that's because mankind and God have never been equals. They've never been the same. And this central difference is what makes our worship so delightful. God is gathering together people who want to worship Him and who delight in worshiping Him. Think about 
that first paradise. Think about that lavish provision that God made for Adam and Eve. This, this lavish paradise, blessed with everything they needed and more, and with God himself, in person. God himself walking with them. What a delightful communion. This life communion was coupled with a covenant commitment. A, a, a promise from the living God, from the creator, to be their God. To, to bless them. To love them. To delight in them. It was to be never ending. It was to be constant. It was to be forever. It was to be a delightful time of praise and worship. And that was to be all of life. Not just one little moment, but all of life. When I was preparing for the ministry years ago, I remember a story uh, that, that um, there was this, this pastor who used to terrify all the incoming candidates for the ministry. Now, he didn't mean to. It wasn't his intention. But he wanted to teach them something. And he used to ask us this question. He said, in the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin, did Adam have an eschatological hope? You're thinking, wow, I'm glad he didn't ask me that, right? What in the world does that even mean, right? In the Garden of Eden before the fall into sin, did Adam have an eschatological hope? And we, we hear this word eschatology. What does that mean? You know, we were used to thinking, well, this is about the end times, right? This is about what will happen after we die, after we go to heaven. What happens after Jesus comes back in power and glory? And it means that. But what Reverend Dennison meant was, is worship something we do just because Jesus has come and saved us from our sins? What was the intent of creation? Did God make Adam to worship God forever? And the answer that was expected was yes. He had a hope. He had a hope for the end of time, for the end of history, for eternity. He, he made us to worship him forever. Now, words don't even really do justice to that word. Forever, to that idea, forever. Have you ever thought of that first garden, the Garden of Eden, in terms of a temple? If you look at some of the descriptions of the Old Testament, we won't go there, of the temple in the Old Testament... You know that there were, there were pictures of pomegranates. There was scroll work. There were, there were pictures of the sky and the heavens. You know, there were some amazing things in there that, that, that make it seem as though God delights in his creation. And, and if you will, we might think of that garden as the first temple. It was at least the first dwelling place where God came together and met with his people. And they worshipped him. They delighted in one another. In fact, um, Adam was called the Evid in Hebrew, the Evid of God. And I want you to notice the, the, the remarkable similarity between the next word. Evid, right? Evid is servant of God. Work or worship is Evodah. The Evid was to engage in Evodah. You see, work and worship went hand in hand from the very creation. There wasn't this terrible disjoint between work and worship. You know, we, we go, oh, man, Sunday's, well, Sunday's over. You know, i got to go back to work on Monday. got to go back to the grind. 
right? There wasn't that sense of dismay. There was this idea that my life is my work. My work is worship. My life is worship. And so it was the design of creation. And so to worship our creator is the design of creation. We were created in righteousness, holiness, and justice. All of our life, from the first to the last, from the biggest to the smallest thing, was an act of perfect worship and praise to God. And so now that begs the question, what happened? What in the world happened? Well, worship is also the victim of the fall into sin. With the fall into sin, our worship didn't stop. Worship didn't stop, but worship was seriously damaged. Worship was seriously distorted. Romans chapter 1, in fact, if you're familiar with that, read that sometime. We won't go there, but Romans chapter 1 teaches that mankind no longer engages in true worship, yet worship still occurs. Right? Chapter 1, verse 25, describes this distortion of worship as exchanging the truth of God for the lie. And as a worshiping servant of the creature, rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. And so there's this distortion that comes about our lives as we as individuals, we as the church, seek to worship the Lord. Well, have, you ever, have you ever wondered, have you ever thought about why so often worship is just so hard? Why it is that people prefer to worship things rather than the living and true God? Maybe I can ask you in a way that's a little less comfortable, a little less abstract. Have you ever fallen asleep in worship? True confessions of a pastor, I have. I guarantee you it hasn't been during one of my own sermons. Okay? I had a professor who used to say there are two sins that a, that a preacher can commit. One is to preach heresy, and the other is to be boring. Well, let's hope and pray that that never, ever happens. Because the Word of God is exciting, it's living, it's active, it's powerful. And He calls us together to rejoice in the good news of the Gospel. But again, the question, have you ever fallen asleep in church, in worship? I ask you not to make you uncomfortable or to shame you if you've ever come to church sleepy or tired. But see, here's the point. Here's the point. If you find yourself sleepy or disengaged or even bored during worship, then I urge you to ask yourself the question. Am I bored or disengaged or tired for a good reason or a bad reason? There are plenty of good reasons to fall asleep in church. And I'm not advocating them. But, but there are some pretty doggone good reasons why people get sleepy and tired in church. I mean, what if the church building is just too hot? Have you ever been in one of those services where you know, everybody had the fans going and, and you're just like, please, right? It's, it's hard to stay awake sometimes. Or, or perhaps you're on medication, right? Maybe you're on medication, and it makes you drowsy, and it's hard to stay awake, right? Or perhaps you've been up late with a sick child, or you've been sick yourself, and you're taking care of someone. You see, these things happen. Our, our worship, all of our problems in worship stem from the fall into sin, but not all problems in worship are because of personal sin. See, so I want us to, I want us to rest assured 
of that. Maybe you're just overwhelmed with life. You've got bills to pay. You've got work deadlines. You've got problems at home in your family. And they weigh on you. And you bring them here. And it's hard to just let it go and go, Lord, just speak to me. Let me praise you. Let me sing your praises. See, if this happens to you for these kinds of reasons, I want you to rest assured. God's word wants you to be assured. The Lord is not dangling this over your head and saying, you're such a bad worshiper. What's your problem? But instead, as one who trusts in Jesus for salvation, he trusts your sincere worship because of the finished work of Jesus. We read earlier that Jesus has sanctified himself to God. He is our high priest. He's the only perfect worshiper, and he has brought a perfect sacrifice of himself to you who trust in him. So rest assured, rest assured that Jesus is constantly interceding for you. He's the Lord of human history who demands and wants our worship. But he's also a sympathetic high priest who loves you and knows that we're weak. And so you can rest assured that his righteousness is sufficient for you when you come to worship and you feel yourself to be weak and you feel yourself to be needy. But what if you fall asleep or are bored or are disengaged for a bad reason or for bad reasons? Well, again, the point of asking is not to put you on a guilt, guilt trip. But the point is, if you struggle with falling asleep in church, or maybe it's not that, maybe it's just being disengaged, or maybe it's just, you know, letting your, your mind just floats and wanders. It's for good reasons or bad reasons. If you find yourself zoning in and out during worship, ask yourself why. Is this happening to me? I mean, is it because I was up until 3 o'clock in the morning, you know, watching videos or, 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 or playing video games or just engaging in something that didn't really let me get enough rest for worship? See, of course you're going to be tired of worship if that happens or something like that. See, if we're making foolish, foolish choices as Christians, then we need to repent. We need to think of these things as hindrances to our worship. Okay? We need to repent of those things and come back to resting in Jesus. See, if it's impacting the thing that's supposed to be at the very center of our existence, then it needs to be a red flag in our lives. And we need to look up and come back. But maybe you're bored, sleepy, or disengaged for another reason. Maybe it's because your heart's drifted from God. Maybe you've ceased to stir up your heart and soul, and you've just, you know, the weariness of life and the attraction of the world has just beaten you down. And maybe you're here because someone dragged you here, or because you feel guilty if you don't show up. What will people say if you're not here? He's calling you to come. He's calling you to come anyway. He's calling you to stir up your soul by the power of the Spirit and to have Jesus once again be your chief treasure. And maybe worship is boring to you because you don't know Jesus, because you've never really trusted him for salvation. If that's the case, then come. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from worshiping idols and things that aren't going to give you any deep and lasting satisfaction. And come to the living God and worship 
him. Delight in Jesus. Remember how he has forgiven you of your sins. How he's given you all the riches of heaven. And make him your chief treasure. So it's time to make sure for some of us that we are Christians. Now is the time to do what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 13.5. He says to them, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust you will know that we are not disqualified. See, Paul balances this challenge to examine ourselves with the hope of the gospel. Again, do you trust Jesus? Do you rest in all that he has done for you for salvation? Do you turn away from your sins? Then be assured, if you fall asleep, well, you know, next time we'll work at it. If you find yourself disengaged and bored, I don't want you to think, well, maybe I'm not a Christian. But if the shoe fits, wear it, okay? If the shoe fits, wear it. Look at each of these scenarios. See, worship is the victim of the fall, but it hasn't been vanquished. We serve a risen Jesus, a high priest, who, if you will, has been the worshiper from God for us. And it is his goal and job and chief desire to come and bring a people and gather together a people who would become his worshipers. This is because Jesus is our redeemer. It's the very goal of our redemption, among many other blessings. But it's one of the chief goals that Jesus would gather together people who love him, who delight in him, and who worship him. John chapter 4 speaks of the women, the, the woman at the well. Jesus said to her, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And so the coming of Jesus marks that hour, the beginning of that time when this great ingathering, this, this, this great Pentecost, if you will, this is the outflowing, the resulting thing of, the resulting effect of Pentecost is that people would be gathered together under the banner of Jesus. But see, only the Holy Spirit can do this. Only the Holy Spirit can do this. The Spirit of Pentecost. Well, this sounds good. If the coming of Jesus marks this great hour that has been awaited, right? Because remember in the Word here, it says that we read earlier, uh, it speaks, uh, uh, Peter says to them, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. And a little further down in verse 36, it says that he has been made both Lord and Christ. This is the one that all the Old Testament saints were looking for. This is the one who was set to gather the people together to unify them and, and, and usher them into eternity, ultimately. Well, the rest of the New Testament then starts to expand on that. The rest of the New Testament takes this idea... And it actually begins to speak of Jesus himself as the true temple. Jesus himself is the place where the people of God meet to worship. Do you want to, do you want to worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit truly? Then come to Jesus. Come to the one who is called the temple. Uh, think, about, think about what, um, uh, what he says in, uh, in John, uh, what John says in chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. Jesus comes to the temple... 
right? He cleanses it. And in verse 19, he says, destroy this temple. And what? In three days, I will raise it up. They all got confused. Like, what do you mean? It took years to build this temple. What do you mean raise it up in three days? Jesus. Later on, John says, no, 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 no. When he says this temple, to what does Jesus refer, right? The Jews are misunderstanding it. But John says in verse 21, he says he's speaking of the temple, of his body, that he would be raised from the dead. Ultimately, we will find that it's through this union, this faith union with Jesus, that we too are joined together with him. And we then, by virtue of our union with him, start becoming the temple of God. And so now it's not just Jesus who is the temple, but he starts building us and fitting us into, be, into becoming a temple of true worshipers. Ephesians 2, 19 and 22. Uh, it says, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. One of the wonderful things about Jesus coming and embodying the fullness of the temple is that he makes the Old Testament sacrifices obsolete. Jesus provides atonement for us. Jesus provides forgiveness for us. Jesus comes and provides perfect worship. And where we fall short, he catches us and accepts us. Now, through union with Jesus, we are the temple of God as well. And the goal of God's redeeming us is to create a people to worship him and bring him glory. In return, he dwells in our midst. He dwells in our midst and fellowships with us and keeps on building us brick by brick, stone by stone. And because the upward focus in worship is the goal of our redemption... Worship then becomes the hallmark of all human activity. Not just our time that we spend in special worship here on the Lord's Day, but of everything we do, every thought, every word, every deed, every small little job we do, every diaper, every mom or dad cleans, right? Every little minute job you do, every spreadsheet at your job that you wrestle over, every small, every big thing you do becomes an act of worship. I love that Pastor Ted included First uh, Peter, First uh, Peter chapter two, four through ten. The context is of Christ as the chief cornerstone of God's temple, and that we as believers are living stones being built into a spiritual house. Meet uh, requisite help, uh, um, uh, fitted, suited for God to inhabit. But especially verse nine. Verse nine says, "You are a chosen generation." a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, we don't have a real formal definition of worship laid out in the Bible, but we all know what it is. You want to proclaim the praises of something or someone that you delight in. Do you delight in the living God? Are you grateful for what, he did, for what he did for you? This is your new identity in Jesus. You are a priest and a king in the temple of God. And now he calls upon you. He calls upon us as individuals. He calls upon us collectively. Live out of that truth. Everything that you do, 
do it as a worshiper of the living God. See, this can only prepare us for our eternity in heaven. We said back in the garden, Adam had an eschatological hope, right? Well, when Jesus returns in power and glory, he's going to bring us to himself as a spotless bride, a church without wrinkles, a body of believers who worship him. There's not even the possibility of falling asleep or getting bored or getting distracted when that glorious vision comes. Revelation 21 is the scene at the end of the age. Jesus comes in power and glory. And then afterwards, his church, his bride, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven to meet him. It says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He shall dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you today that when you evaluate yourself as a worshiper, when you evaluate Redeemer Church as a worshiping body, you don't look you don't navel gaze in that hypercritical sense that leads to despair. But instead you judge with sober judgment. And sober judgment means who has come to save you? Who has come as your high priest? You look to him. You look to his work. And out of that reality, you live. You go into your jobs and you praise him. You go into your families and your home and you have family worship and you have your devotions. I don't get caught up if you miss a day. But no, just keep on keeping on in the sure knowledge that Christ is your high priest, that Jesus is the temple, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that this is our calling. And what God calls us to do, he will also give us the power through his Holy Spirit to perform. Brothers and sisters, do not be discouraged, but be encouraged. You live in the day of the effects of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is yours, teaching you, guiding you, and helping you to worship your Lord through Jesus Christ, his Son. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, be with us as we worship you. Help us to delight in your holy name. Thank you for your Son, Jesus, and thank you that he has rescued us from depending on our own efforts, we look to you, risen Lord Jesus, as our high priest. We worship you in spirit and in truth. In your precious name we pray. Amen.